A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T. Good morning, afternoon, or midnight. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of PQRST, a busy season episode. Uh, two weeks ago, I recorded as we were driving around together doing school deliveries. School deliveries are pretty much done, but it is still busy season. I have a bunch of labels to make. I am primary caregiving, and I'm recording a podcast, The Age of the Multitasking. And it is definitely going to be a two chapters of the kid type of episode, uh, partly because I don't have uh, an hour's worth of interesting things that have happened to me to talk about, and also because I don't have an hour of time to talk about them, even if I did. But one thing that has changed in the last fortnight, which is interesting, um, I, as if you're a regular listener, you know I'm a big fan of the sound of my own voice, in addition to... In addition to this podcast, um, I also have started recording books on tape. Obviously, the one that I wrote that you're going to, if you keep listening, get to hear a couple chapters of today. Um, but also, I recorded The Phantom Tollbooth. I've recorded Harriet the Spy. I recorded Cheaper by the Dozen. Uh, so that as my wife and I, and now son, uh, go for road trips, we have something to listen to. Grew up going for road trips with the family and always enjoyed listening to things like The Lord of the Rings or... So on and such like, and so I thought, hey, it'd be fun to uh, make some recordings, uh, things that I like that I don't have access to, and, uh, you know, especially since it's free, it takes a bunch of time, but uh, don't have to pay for a recording perhaps someone else has made. And in case of, like, say, the Phantom Tollbooth, I don't know if a recording has been made. Uh, if there's one out there, I'm not aware of it anyway. So I happened upon uh, a website while I was looking for a recording of Peter Pan, or I should say Peter and Wendy, because that's the original name. And when I, as I was growing up, I used to listen to cassette tapes of the unabridged reading of uh, Peter and Wendy, and I wish I could find that particular version, because I have some lines memorized. I would love to have that particular version, but while I haven't tracked that one down, what I did find was a site called LibriVox.org, L-I-B-R-I-V-O-X.org, LibriVox. It's sort of a an attempt at Latin speak, um, the words free and voice put together. And if you are a fan of listening to things, uh, listening to audio recordings, and if you are a fan of things being free, by all means, write down LibriVox.org, because what that site is about, they are, the good people at LibriVox are attempting to make recordings of every book and writing in the public domain, which at the moment means everything up until 1922 and next year 1923 and then a year after that 1924 and their their lofty ambition is to eventually have every th book recorded and uh they have already recorded thousands and thousands of books and when i discovered that was a thing after finding peter and wendy i also downloaded all the oz books all the tarzan books just about everything mark twain ever put to paper i mean there are many 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 things to be found at librivox.org the fun part is they are looking for readers to add to the collection. 
unfortunately, things like, well, the Phantom Tollbooth, I'm sure they'd be happy to add to their collection in about 50 years. Chronicles of Narnia, another quarter century. Uh, Little House on the Prairies, another 10 years before such things are in the public domain. But there are plenty of things that are in the public domain now. And that's where I actually come in and why I'm telling you nice people about that. It's very exciting. Um, because it, we've established I like reading books into a microphone, and they need people who read books into a microphone, and so I have joined the LibriVox movement. Probably should have waited a couple weeks because I do not have time for any extra things to do right now, but I'm well aware that within about three and a half weeks, suddenly my schedule clears up, and besides primary caregiving, which of course is my first and most important job, I have very little to do for months on end. Um, now, I also have an improv team now. Oh, it's so much fun when I get to think about that. I'm on an improv team again. Um, but that's that's one Monday night a week and occasional performances. That's not going to take up a ton of time. I need something to do. And it looks like uh, recording things for LibriVox might be the new when I the nine months out of the year when I'm not busy sort of project. And I'm very, very, very excited. Um, it is possible to suggest and hopefully do solo projects, and I don't mind telling you that one of the things I hope to get to do is a recording of all of the Sherlock Holmes stories. Now, all of the Sherlock Holmes stories, or at least a great many of them, are currently on the LibriVox site, but unless I missed it and didn't look carefully enough, nobody has gone through and done a single recording of everything. One voice one, you know, particular British accent, and I happen to have the complete Sherlock Holmes in a two-volume set that my father gave me when I was, like, 12, and it would be it'd be really fun to, to read it with this particular accent that I'm using now, which is one of my favorite accents, and I'm very fond of my accents, uh, the Sherlock Holmes stories. So, hopefully, at some point, that'll be something that I get to do, and believe me, you'll hear about it when it happens. Um, they encourage new readers to start with small things, probably because most new readers aren't uh, used to doing hours and hours of recording like yours truly. Um, so, you know, I'll start with a short story or some poetry or add a couple of chapters. That's the other thing. You can jump in and just select three chapters or five chapters or one chapter of a book currently in progress. There are dramatic readings where you can say, hey, I want to do this character from The Count of Monte Cristo. I want to do this character from... Black Beauty, I think it's already been done, but you hear what I'm saying. Um, so I needed a project. Uh, God directed me to LibriVox, and uh, I'm very, very excited about that. So that's all I wanted to say about that. Um, one more short story, and then we will jump into the chapters for today. When I sign off of this podcast, and a regular listener is aware, I say, own your stage. That's kind of my, my uh, sign-off motto, if you will. And... I have a couple examples of stages being owned because I've been filming dance recitals. So I'm talking about literal stages. And I'll tell you one story now, and then after chapters 6 and 7 of The Kid, I'll tell you the other. So I was at, uh, I won't say where, because uh, it's, it's, there's an unfortunate audio-video problem um, as far as the, uh, the soundboard operator at the show, and I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but... It's a, a very nice venue, very nice theater. I've always been uh, very pleased to work with these people, and sometimes things just happen. But anyway, I'm filming a dance recital at an undisclosed location, and the uh, dancing is, is ongoing. Anyway, one dance has ended. The next one is about to start. The three uh, teenage tapped 
tappers have taken their place on stage, and as occasionally happens, the wrong music starts playing. So lights come up, music starts, it's the wrong music. The three tappers, as they're supposed to, hold position. About 10, 15 seconds in, far too long, but mistakes happen. I have a feeling the audio person, because it was a very easy show, might have been playing Candy Crush on their phone or something, I don't know, and it doesn't matter. After 10 or 15 seconds, somebody realizes, oh, that's the wrong music, and they chop off the music. They try to find the right music. They continue looking for the right music. They try to play another track, still the wrong track. It turns out the right music has disappeared somewhere, and a CD needs to be grabbed from backstage. The long and the short of it is that the three tap performers stood in position for two full minutes. Now, they only stood in their opening light for about 15 seconds, because then they brought the stage lights down, but there's still some light in the house, and so they're still visible on stage. It's not like nobody can see them. They stood, and they waited, and they held position for two minutes. And two minutes may not seem like a long time, but imagine sitting in a stoplight for two minutes. Imagine, you know, planking for two minutes. Two minutes can be, in certain circumstances, a very long time, and... Being on stage, waiting for a performance with hundreds of people looking at you for two full minutes while you cannot continue because there's an element that's missing is an extremely long time. And when they finally got the right uh, for Schlugener music and started the actual tap, the tap, the three performers were ready and they, they owned it. They spent that two minutes and the subsequent I, I think the time they waited to start the dance was half again as long as the dance itself maybe more than half but they owned that stage because they held it, they waited until the audio guy got his head out of the well we'll say the clouds rather than any place on his own anatomy so that's one of my stories of recent experience with people owning their stage here, now, we will go to chapter 6 and 7 of The Kid, find out what's going on in 1949, and then, when you come back, I will tell you the other story. So that means you got to stick around. It's called a tease, and I know I'm being a tease, but I know you'll come back for the rest. Plus, you want to hear The Kid anyway. Here he is. Chapter 6. One warm, sultry evening in late June, Jason Stiller walked slowly down a Boston sidewalk, watching gray clouds scuff across the horizon. The air smelled like rain, and he enjoyed it, even as he wondered if it were possible to count just how many ways life could become difficult. At his side, achingly quiet for the past half hour, strode the beautiful woman that he was finding himself more and more deeply in love with every time the sun rose. He loved the green of her eyes, her chestnut hair, and the ponytail it was then pulled back into. He loved the simple gingham dress she wore, and even the bobby socks that peeked out underneath that. Jason Stiller loved everything he could think of about Raven Germain, and as far as he knew anything, which he would have admitted probably wasn't all that far, she was there walking next to him, smelling the same oncoming rain for a similar reason, not out of duty or obligation or just friendship. Not just friendship, something more. He loved everything he could think of about her, except her silence because he didn't know what to do now. However, he was not one to let things just sit forever. Gathering strength, he took a deep breath and said, So... The word hung in the still air without reply, until Jason wondered if he had actually said it or just thought it very hard in his own mind. 
until she replied, So... His eyes met hers, and joy of joys, she was smiling. That being enough of an invitation to continue, Jason mustered all of the courage he had, and quietly whispered, So what happens now? Her eyes shifted away, and he didn't know what the look in them meant, or what was going through her mind. But somewhere along the way, Jason had learned when to be quiet, when to leave a woman alone with her thoughts. Whatever they might be, as much as the possibilities made him anxious. When she realized he was going to let her come to her own conclusion without prodding, Raven was grateful. Because she was also more than a little anxious, fearful, really. As she took stock of her insides, of the thoughts and feelings she had for the handsome, good-humored young man walking next to her, Raven knew that she wanted to be around him. She wanted to listen to his jokes, even just his voice, and feel his arms about her and let him whisper in her ear. Which was the thing that scared her. She found more and fiercer desire for him than she would have thought possible in such a short time, but she had learned not to trust in the things she wanted. Life had a way of ripping everything she really cared for away from her, and what would happen if... Could she dare to love him? She still hadn't told Jason about what her father had done the last time he had caught her in a boy's arms. A baseball player's arms, at that. A player who was no longer a member of the Braves, a player whose baseball career was finished. She hadn't told him about that. She knew she should. But if he knew, he might run, and she might not survive without him if he stopped loving her, and if nobody ever again decided to. Raven deliberately made her thoughts quiet down. She knew she could go back and forth over if and if and if until her eyes crossed and things would still happen the way they would happen. Without his noticing, Raven studied her companion for a long moment, and her heart pined within her to be closer to him, to be near him. And in the end, well, it had been a very long time since her heart had wanted anything. In the end, she followed that and put more than a little trust in it, whether it was wise to or not. Jason's breath caught for a moment when he felt her hand capture his, as her warm fingers twined about his own. He looked down and saw goose flesh along his arm, and then he laughed suddenly to see the same on hers. He stopped walking, and she stopped as well, facing him. And as she had once before, Raven let the mask she always wore slide away, let the gate protecting her heart swing open. It was the bravest and most frightening thing she had ever done, even though she felt she could trust this man a very long ways. His own open gaze met hers as young man and young woman looked into each other's soul. She was surprised when she saw the tears well up in his eyes. I thought she didn't know how to cry. His voice was soft. I didn't. Life went by for a few moments, and then he whispered, You're so beautiful. Not that she minded hearing that, but she seemed to recall... You promise not to say that ever again. She gave him a little smile, so he knew she was kidding. I lied. She looked as deeply into him as she dared, and wondered at what she saw there. For his own part, Jason had as much wonder in his own self to see her, really see her, for the first time, far beyond the color of her eyes or the softness of her smile. The wonder finally prompted him to speak. You've uh, taken the mask off. Her voice was also soft, so that he just barely caught what she said. For now? It was enough. 
He didn't need to push for how long or how far. The mask had come down for a time, and that time would be enough. For now. Best to be formal about things, however. Best to make sure everything was said that needed to be. Jason cleared his suddenly dry throat. Uh, (laughs) May I court you, Miss Germain? She was already holding his hand, and neither was a child anymore. And the question was what came next, as naturally as day followed night. But when Raven heard the words, she immediately thought ahead to everything, to long-term and intimate and wedding plans and the future she was only now even beginning to think existed, and it was too much, too much. He read that in her eyes. He felt it in the slackening of the grip on his hand. Raven, when she looked at him again, he squeezed her hand just a bit for just a moment. Forget that question. Forget I asked. May I... And he cast around for what he could say, needing something to define the relationship they were finding together. May I continue to hold your hand? It wasn't much, but it was something. Very silly, perhaps, but still something. She blushed and swallowed something that looked very much like a lump of anxiety, but when she met his eyes again, she was still there. The gate was still open. For now? He couldn't help but smile having received the answer he was hoping for. Raven and Jason walked back where they had come, back to the Muldowney home before it rained. He held her hand all the way back, and it was enough. Raven Germain sat on the Muldowney's porch swing with Jason Stiller. Her legs curled up under her while he kept the swing moving a little with his foot. The young lady found herself immersed in happiness and peace. For just a short while, she didn't need to be anyone or anything she wasn't. She could be herself, whoever that was. And she could lay her arm along the swing back and her head on her arm and just feel the gentle motion back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, listening to the crickets chirping off in the distance somewhere and the creaking of far-off screen doors. There was nothing but peace and she reveled in it. Jason watched the expression on her face soften into something he hadn't seen before, and the peace he saw there was so achingly beautiful that it almost deserved another tear or two. Her left arm was supporting her head, but her right was draped across her lap, the fingers of her right hand dangling invitingly between them, and when he stretched out his own right hand to gently take hold of hers again, She didn't pull away or open her eyes. And who is endless joy, the already happy expression on her face softened into a more contented smile and a quiet sigh. Jason thought that he could quite easily stay there, on that swing, just holding her hand and looking at her face, forever. Although, forever being the long time that it was, he might want to get in a ball game or two as well. The screen door squeaked as D.G. came out to pay his respects to the twilight. Jason looked up, but the older man quickly motioned that he should keep sitting where he was. Rather, Raven's godfather leaned against the porch railing, drinking in a long look at the town before turning to his star hitter and the owner's daughter. He spoke softly. She asleep? She said, no, just as softly, without opening her eyes. Jason dropped his head, grinning. D.G. waited until he looked up again. 
Old and occasionally senile though he was, Dennis could still see past the end of his nose. So the two of you are kind of sweet on each other now? Raven's smile deepened just a bit, though she was apparently going to let the guy holding her hand answer the question. D.G. was pleasantly surprised when his confident baseball celebrity actually blushed a little crimson. I guess, sort of, yeah. Deej tried not to laugh, and almost managed. I remember my sort of days. You're all right, kid. Turning back to look at the town, in the corner of his eye he could still see the two of them just sitting, and D.G. thought to himself that as far as he was concerned, it was very good. But it was also supper time, and despite the wishes of budding love, nothing lasts forever. Not even back then. The comfortable port swing was left to creak alone while Modalny, Germain, and Stiller went inside. There was a reason why the flowering love between the two had to find its root at the Muldowney house, and that reason was fear, Raven well remembering what her father really thought of baseball players. Jason had agreed that they didn't want to get the boss mad, and so they had resorted to cloak and dagger. And all Robert Germain knew was that his only daughter was spending the evening with the Muldownies, and Raven imagined that he was probably happy to be alone. Counting his money, she figured. Whether or not Mr. Germain realized or remembered that Jason Stiller was also living with the Muldownies, he hadn't seemed to put it together. They were both very glad of that. They had talked about her father more than once, especially in the beginning, when Raven had feared that the young man she had begun to love would be pushed away, driven off by the strong-willed, immensely stubborn head of the Germain household, but even the overhanging threat against his baseball playing hadn't slowed Jason down, though it had made them both very, very careful. After all, he had a lot riding on the good graces of Robert Germain, and Raven could understand if he wanted to both have his cake and eat it, be a famous, celebrated brave, but also be her man. That was why she had told him what he had already surmised, that she wasn't supposed to have any special interest in baseball players at large. Raven had not, however, trusted the strength of their relationship enough to tell him what had happened before. She had learned from her new love's example how it was possible to push things away, and push she did, hoping some things might go far enough to never come back. They did come back, though, at the strangest times. Even as Jason finished pushing in her chair and moved to his own seat at the Muldowney supper table, the fears came up again from nowhere, shattering the peace she had felt just a moment before. But with a fast, concentrated effort, she pushed them all away once again. She loved him. She needed him. And he loved her in return. Everything would be okay. Gertrude Muldowney was in the middle of setting supper on the table when she noticed the look in her goddaughter's eyes, saw fear and anger suddenly replace peace and joy, and just as suddenly vanish again. She noticed, but said nothing. Grace was said by the head of the household, and since Raven did not know the person being spoken to, she didn't bother to close her eyes. And there was a difference, a separation among the bowed heads around her, while her man beside her and the head of the household saying the prayer both had neutral, same-old-same-old expressions on their faces, Gertrude's countenance was full of strength and peace while the prayer was being said. If Raven had known it, there was a distinct similarity to the look she herself had expressed earlier in the peaceful twilight on a porch swing. It was the look of someone in close relationship, someone in love. 
Raven knew, somehow, that even though Gertrude's eyes were closed, they were still sparkling. The young lady quickly looked down before she could be caught staring as D.G.'s ritual prayer came to its usual close. As supper was served, it took Gertrude several minutes to finally draw Raven into a conversation. The girl seemed distracted about something, but didn't say what. Yet the boys had gone into baseball again, which, while understandable and not surprising, didn't leave much for her to enjoy unless there were another woman present. And Gertrude told Raven as much, hoping quietly that they could find something to talk about. They did, and Gertrude reflected later that perhaps the topic was as unsurprising as the boys launching right into baseball. After all, when something was right in the front of one's mind... How did you know that you were in love? When did you realize he... And Raven cast an unnecessary glance towards D.G., was the one for you. Oh, well... Mrs. Muldowney considered the question, and then giggled, answering the girl with the same gently southern accent that she had hung on to despite all the years living in Boston. You'll have to let me develop that answer a bit slowly, dear. Our courting days are getting on to about thirty years ago. Raven was quick to back down. You don't have to. You don't want to. I didn't mean... Oh, sweetheart... Gertrude looked over her glasses at Raven in an exasperatedly kind way. If you don't want to know, you shouldn't ask, but you did, so there, hmm? I'm just warning you, it might take a bit of plodding. I have to wade through more than a few old memories. But if you'll give me a moment... She took that moment to think about it, kindly not paying attention to her goddaughter, who was blushing furiously at even such a gentle rebuke. Gertie also ignored the current menfolk talk, which could be batting averages or old statistics or even just about the ball itself. Yes, sir, it's all round and white, real purdy, you know. Well, whatever. It could go on without her help for the time being. She did look at her husband, though, finding pleasantly that she could still see the man who had been about Jason's age way back then. He had changed in many ways, but the man she had loved and did love was still there, gruffing at his player about something or other. Now that I give it some thought, Sugar, the first time I saw Mr. Muldowney was in Germany. Were you on vacation? Gertrude ducked her head, trying not to laugh at Raven, but unable to hide the sudden smile. No, Sugar, it wasn't any sort of vacation. It was the First World War. Ah. Raven looked like she was about to be embarrassed again, so Gertrude continued. This was, goodness, 1918? Well, and it really was about 30 years ago. I'd gone through nurses' training just in time to be sent off to care for our boys overseas. And I'd done so for several years. And it wasn't a great deal of fun, sugar. But I saw a lot of things I've been very happy not to see again. And I suppose that's why, when the brash, cocky, private Muldowney came under my care, full of stories about fighting Germans and serving under General Pershing and pretty much acting like he took on the Germans and the Russians all by himself, I found myself interested in him wanting to hear the sound of his voice, see the twinkle in his eyes, even after he got well. Even after the war was over. Raven was curious. What did he need treatment for? Didn't I say? Gertrude wondered. I guess I don't remember the particulars by this time, but he had managed to catch some shrapnel in his right arm. You can still see the scars. Make sure you get him to explain what happened someday. And, darling, was he ever a baby when he came in, blubbering about how he thought he was going to lose his arm, and how was he ever going to play baseball now? Raven smiled, along with her godmother at the story, and then smiled again a bit more wryly. It always gets back to baseball, doesn't it? 
Usually, honey, usually. Her eyes twinkled behind her glasses. But that was the important thing in Dennis George's life, just like it seems fairly important to your beau over there. Now Raven rolled her eyes, and in a quiet place inside, Gertrude was thrilled to see her young friend showing such emotion. It had been a long time. But you have to give men their dreams, sweetheart. Have to give them to everybody, really. She wanted suddenly to ask Raven about her dreams, but thought better of it. Not the right time. But like I said, even after he didn't need my nursing services anymore, I still wanted to be around him, except in that one morning he weren't there. His company had gone off to do some cleaning up in another part of Germany. He was just gone. What did you do? Oh, cried a bit. I felt lost. All those things you do when you think somebody's gone forever. A shared look confirmed that both women understood what was being said. But that Dennis, he'd really made an impression on me. Gertrude was quiet for a moment, just watching her husband as he talked with his star hitter, a young man he continually claimed to be exasperated with, but, she had noticed, a young man he talked and bragged about quite often. So I stopped crying, decided that sooner or later both of us would be back in the U.S., and I was just going to see if I couldn't look him up. You found him through the military? Gertrude laughed again. Oh, sugar, those government folks were as unhelpful as could be. Which I've never blamed them for. After all, there were more important things going on than just helping a poor love-struck army nurse find one of her charges. They were dealing with treaties and disarmaments and all those really worthwhile things. Huh. Raven looked like she was putting herself in that situation, wondering what she would do. Well, you obviously found him. Obviously. How? Raven, do you believe in God? The question caught Raven right between the eyes, and for a moment she just sat and stared, and wondered why Gertrude had changed the subject on her. Ah, uh, well, no, not really. She thought her friend might get upset, but Gertrude just nodded. Well, then you might not understand this, but I think God let me know where Dennis was. He did a little miracle for me. What happened? She wasn't sure she believed, but she still wanted to know. I'd gone back to Mississippi as soon as my tour was over, once the war got settled and I wasn't aided. I didn't really know anything about Dennis, although I did remember how he was always talking about those baseball dreams. So I kept an ear out for baseball news. It was a very long shot, seeing as how there were several dozen American teams to listen for in two separate leagues. <laughs> Good thing the Federal League was gone by then, or it would have been three, with 20, 30 players each. And I had no idea whether or not my Dennis would actually make it onto a team anyway. But, out of the blue, one summer afternoon, I, I think it was 1920. Yes, it was. I remember I was walking through the bus terminal on my way home from working at a flower shop when I saw a discarded newspaper. Well, I had developed a habit, Raven, of picking up any paper I hadn't seen and scanning the baseball section, just looking for that familiar name. The few people who knew about it thought I was crazy, and I probably was. But I'll tell you this. The paper was from Boston. To this day, I don't know how it got to Mississippi, but the name I'd kept looking for was right there. Lucky for me, it was a list of the entire team, those handsome Boston Braves, because my Dennis wasn't one of the first-string players. But he was there, grinning with the rest. There were tears in her eyes, but a smile on her face. What did you do? The moment I got home, I called the switchboard and got hooked up with the information service in Boston, and from there managed to reach somebody loosely connected with the Braves, 
And after a lot of cajoling, he told me how to reach Edgar Saunders, who was the manager at the time. And what did he say? Raven found she was deeply into the story. It was another miracle, I think, sweetheart, because he really didn't have time for young southern bells and was going to hang up on me. Can you believe it? Until I told him that the man I was looking for had been my charge in Germany. And it just so happened that his own daughter had been an army nurse in Raven. From there, it was like we were old friends. Within minutes, I was hearing that gruff, scratchy, wonderful voice over the phone lines. As the younger woman watched, Mrs. Muldowney's sparkling eyes caught Mr. Muldowney's. And though the man of the house didn't know what was going on, he smiled back and winked at his wife before looking back at Raven's own man. And the younger girl wondered suddenly if Jason could ever love her like that. Gertrude continued, And wonder of wonders, he remembered me, and he'd miss me too a bit. Though at first I don't think he was as taken with me. I had to work on him. Did you go to Boston? Eventually, though for a year or two we just wrote letters. And those letters kept getting more and more romantic. We kept getting closer and closer, even though the miles between us were still there, until the day I took a train up to Boston and married him. Gosh, that's beautiful. Raven sighed just a bit as she pushed a stray lock of hair behind her ear. Happily ever after, huh? Gertrude's quick laugh was surprising. Oh, oh, sugar, life isn't like that. Marriage takes a lot of work. Nobody's told you. A lot of work. But it's worth it, though. And the same look was back in her eyes, and Raven found herself a little envious. Jason saw the look in the eyes of the girl he loved and was wondering what had happened when D.G. grunted and smacked him on the shoulder. Get it's good to talk baseball with a man who understands. I swear, the reception America's favorite pastime gets in this house mostly, I just don't know what the world is coming to. Jason saw D.G. make like he was glowering at his wife and receive impishly raised eyebrows in return. It's not like I don't acknowledge your sport, my one true love. Her accent now dripped, honey. But I don't have to eat and sleep and breathe it, do I? Raven was smiling, and Jason forgot about the look she had worn before. D.G. cackled. Now you just go on and don't pay no never mind to baseball. I'll just hang on to my new friend Mr. Stiller here, a man who understands what I'm talking about. Jason watched as his manager swung to face him. We gonna win the pennant this year? You bet, Mr. Muldowney. A mocking finger shook in his face, as far removed, fear-wise, from certain threatening pitchers named Striplehorn as could be. Now, young man, you listen here. If and you don't call me DG like the rest of the world, I may just toss you out on your keister. We gonna win the pennant this year? No stranger to being ornery himself, Jason grinned. Yep. Ah, close enough. How about the series? We gonna win that? Yes, sir. Are you the greatest ball player ever, or ain't my name Dennis George? Ah. Uh, Jason knew what answer he wanted to give, but found that his tongue was stuck, that he couldn't just shout out the yes that he so desperately wanted to believe in. I, uh, I'm hoping so, sir. That quickly, the mood in the room evaporated, and the smiles disappeared. Uh, I'm sorry about that, Jason. Raven watched as her godfather punched his star hitter gently on the closest shoulder. Didn't think that question would be so difficult. You can say yes any time, kid. I'd swear to the truth of it. She saw a small resolve slip into place of the naked fear and anxiety that had written itself across his face just a moment before. Yes, sir. You're really the best, Jason. I've been watching, and I'm sure it can be said. Gertrude had gotten up while the men had been talking, gone out into the kitchen for dessert, 
but she didn't miss the next words. You still got those dreams to hang on to, Jason. Dreams of the next home run and the upcoming World Series. Dreams I used to understand better myself. If you don't have dreams, what the heck is life worth, anyway? I know an inventor who would disagree with you. Raven heard Mrs. Muldowney's quiet comment and took a moment to think about it and still didn't know what she was talking about. Jason met her eye and looked confused as well. The man of the house, though, laughed. Gertie, you keep bringing up that story, and I keep telling you, there doesn't seem to be a single way in which that guy, whoever he was, and myself have anything in common. It's just a nice story. Whatever you say, Danis. Her expression was fairly unreadable, but Raven caught just a tiny hint of sadness and frustration, which is probably what prompted the girl's next question, logical though it was. What story? Oh, child. Gertrude talked as she continued passing out plates of strawberry shortcake. It's just an old story that a friend told me a long time ago. Go on, Gertie. Maybe your goddaughter and her beau, he winked at them both, will find the hidden meaning you've always been trying to bash into my head. Besides, D.G. continued, pushing away from the table, I think I want to look over my starting lineup for tomorrow's game. Don't you be on your way without my knowing it, kids. Jason stood to help his manager clear the supper dishes while Raven began sampling her dessert. She had time enough to pronounce it delicious before her beau was back in the room. Without his realizing it, she had studied him when he entered, and found yet again that she liked what she saw. It was hard to believe, sometimes, that he had chosen her. As he sat down and dug into his own dessert, Jason wondered quietly if there had been any special reason for Raven's stare. He found himself wondering, for the first time in a long while, whether or not he was good-looking, attractive. Smiling into his shortcake, Jason Stiller considered this amazing girl who could shake even his self-confidence. He was still musing when Gertrude started her story. Well, this was told to me just a short while ago by a man whose name I never caught. I was walking through Bergen Park, one autumn that's years passed by now, and I saw a man sitting on a bench throwing breadcrumbs to the ducks in the lake. For no real reason, I sat down beside him and watched for a while. When we finally said hello, and I believe I told him my name, though... Like I've said, I never learned his. But I did understand that he was in Boston on holiday and would soon be going back to Florida where he lived. I had some family in Florida, and that got us talking. And after a while, he asked me if I'd like to hear a story. Now, that wasn't the strangest request I'd ever heard, though it was right up there. But by the time he asked, I felt like I'd known the stranger for a long time. And it seemed very natural to ask him to tell whatever story he had. Gertrude thought maybe she was losing her audience and wondered how one was supposed to keep the attention of kids anymore. But it was her story, and she was the hostess, so they'd just have to suffer through it, she decided. He said that a long time before, while it was still the 18th century, he'd known a man who was an inventor. Now, if you go out and look at the street out there, you'll see plenty of cars and trucks rattling about, but 60 years ago, the automobile didn't even exist. But it was about to, you see. Somebody smart figured out everything the horseless carriage would need, except for the most difficult and important part, which would be the engine. There was a big hue and cry in inventor circles about who could be the first to come up with the infernal what's-it engine. Eternal combustion? Jason put in. Gertrude kept rolling, despite his interruption. Thank you, son, the engine that would be necessary before any cars would go anywhere. So I'm listening to this man in the park as he tells me about his friend, a man who had a line on how to create that engine. It would take most of his time and all of his money, 
but by golly he knew he could do it, and the reward was well worth the expense. Because everybody knew, everybody who was an inventor, anyway, knew that the man who invented the engine and got automobiles up and running might easily become the richest, most successful man on earth. Kind of like you and your baseball dreams, young man. She looked over her glasses at Jason. And I'm sure you can relate to wanting to be the best and brightest, right? Yes, ma'am. She smiled at him while Raven blushed at the cheek of it. Good boy. Well, sir, as I keep finding myself saying, this inventor had what it took, had his dream firmly in place, and was running after it with all his might. Until, and there's always an until, isn't there? Until his wife became very deathly ill. The room was quiet. Dessert had been consumed by now, and there was no tinkling of fork and plate, just attentive eyes and listening ears. He loved his wife very much, this inventor, and it struck him as hard as her when she caught a very nasty disease. I'm afraid I don't know what it was, which is a pity, me being a nurse and all, but the technical name's not so important. The thing about the disease was that it not only sapped his wife's strength, it also ate away at her mind, so that before long she was an invalid who could barely even recognize him. In time, she didn't know who he was at all. Raven thought she had almost never heard anything so terrible. She forgot him? She forgot him. What happened? What did he do? Well then, Gertrude leaned back in her chair, thinking about her own story. When his wife began to get sick, the inventor started spending his infernal combustion engine money on doctors, on medicine, on ways to make his wife happier and more comfortable. He kept working on ways that she might get well again, and she kept getting sicker. And all the while, this competition to get that auto engine worked out was slipping away from his grasp. Eventually, he came to a fork in the road, the big decision. He could turn to his inventing, start up the chase for his dreams once more, or he could turn instead to his wife, who was beyond saving, who was soon to pass on from this world and who no longer remembered who she was or acknowledged his life in any way. The weight of such a decision bore down upon three minds, and the room was quiet. Jason broke the silence. And? The man in the park, the stranger telling me this story, said that the inventor needed not even a minute's thought to come to his decision. He did what was right, like it or no. What? Raven's voice was soft. What do you mean? Jason was also listening. He let go of any chance of being rich, of being famous, of being any of the things he had wanted to be, except one, upstanding, or noble, if you prefer. He had promised, and I'm telling you this the way it was told to me, mind, he had promised his wife that he would love and honor and cherish her until death parted them, and that's what he did. She no longer remembered him. He was a stranger to her, yet he spent the rest of his money lavishing comfort and affection on her until the day she died. Someone else perfected the automobile engine. Someone else got fame and glory and riches. The inventor came out penniless and alone. Again, a silence reigned until, again, Jason Stiller spoke. Does the story end there? It might. The only reason I say it doesn't is just this gut feeling I have. The man in the park who told me that story mentioned in passing that his wife had died long before that day. And when you looked in his eyes as he told that story... I could see emotion there that couldn't be explained unless he'd known the people in it personally somehow. If I'm right, if the man in the park was the inventor himself, if the story was true, well, I think he was still happy with his decision. 
Uh, that's an interesting story, Jason nodded. He was a good man, I guess. I guess. Gertrude looked over her glasses at the young man, but said nothing more. From the archway that led into the kitchen, D.G. laughed. Don't know how it applies to you, though, do you? Jason laughed and shook his head. Not really. I just play baseball, Mr. Muldowney. At that, the manager of the Braves went into another tirade as to what Jason was supposed to call him, and while he did so, the seriousness of the story flew away. But not before Raven tucked it deep inside to ponder in her heart later. Chapter 7 In early July, during the Independence Day game at home against the Washington Senators, Jason Stiller went five for five, and three of those hits were home runs. There was a lot of cheering. Hometown fans just for the Braves, of course, but when the kid came up to bat, even the folks rooting for Washington to win still cheered him on. There was something magical about the way he could hit a baseball. Everyone agreed on that, and they all wanted to see it. Directly after the game, Kip told Jason that his average had just topped 375, and there was more than one fan, sports writers included, who were hoping to see the fabled number 400, the brass ring of batting averages snagged by the end of the season. Ted Williams of the Boston Red Sox might have the most home runs, but Jason, the kid, Stiller, was taking the Braves like an arrow straight to the pennant, and the series beyond. Justifiably, Jason, the kid, Stiller, felt fairly good about himself that afternoon as he hung around the bleacher railing near first base, talking with the few fans who had stayed behind in case any of the players came by. The staunchest Braves fan, who, because he was a friend Jason called Beanie, always stayed behind. And for no particular reason, Jason always tried to make time to speak with the man. The propeller cap and ice cream vendor's uniform never changed, and neither did the enormous smile. That was quite a show you gave us today, Mr. Stiller. Jason understood what kept D.G. Muldowney gruffing at him. He had told Beanie a hundred times to call him Jason, and finally given up. I'm glad you were here to see it, Beanie. Are you well today? The huge man answered as slowly and carefully as always. As well as could be expected, I'm sure. Hello, Mr. Gumbo. Hiya, Beanie. Jason turned to see that his sports writing friend had popped up from nowhere. Where'd you come from? Yeah, Mommy always says I came from heaven. Beanie, he continued, leaving a startled ball player laughing behind him. You feel the way I do about the Braves' chances for a run at the pennant this year? As impossible as Jason would have made it, Beanie's grin widened. It does not seem to be completely out of the question, Mr. Gumbo. Not completely, not completely. Kip was about to ask something else, but he was interrupted by a jeer from behind them all as Bud Triplehorn walked past, flanked by Dutch and Pickens. Well, gee whiz, fellas. Looked like the weirdo squad meeting is running a little late today. Kip didn't turn, but looked out of the corner of his eye at the kid. Jason did turn to glare at Triplehorn for the comment, daring the man's buddies to say anything. But both Dutch and Pickens looked embarrassed, like they realized how childish the whole situation was. The three walked away, but neither was looking at Bud, who swaggered with his nose held pridefully high. I do not think I like that man very much. Beanie's comment cut through Jason's dark thoughts. The young man turned, and when he saw that his fan's huge smile wasn't any dimmer, despite what had just happened, Jason let himself be wise for once, and let it go, choosing to allow for Beanie's acceptance instead of Bud's rejection. I don't like it much either, Beanie. No matter. 
Will you make sure to catch the Pennsylvania game on the radio? Without doubt, Mr. Stiller. I would not miss it. With that, the huge man tipped his propeller cap at them both and turned, ascending the bleachers with the same lumbering steps. Triple horn trouble? Nothing that needs to get into the papers, Kip. His friend looked a little insulted, but considered and nodded. Eh, I understand. You should know, though, that I'm your friend, not just a reporter. I'm not about to sell out your personal life just to grab readers. Thanks for that, Jason said, and meant it. I don't know about Bud. I've been trying to stay out of his way since, well, since spring training. Since my first day, really. Especially after the incident on the train. I remember. Kip had been tossed aside along with Phil Bryce when the big, angry man had come barging into the train berth. So, whatever's going on, I'm just letting his insults go. Nothing to worry about. If it gets too bad, I could always talk to Mr. Muldowney about it. Except that he wouldn't, which Jason didn't tell his friend. But Jason knew that he was not about to admit weakness in front of anybody. It wasn't his style. He took care of his own problems. Hey, speaking of personal lives, there was a rumor I've heard more than once around this baseball team that you and Raven Jermaine have been spending more than the usual amount of time together. Jason coughed. What's uh, usual, he stalled. Level with me, kid. It's Kip you're talking to. Wondering if the fire in his friend's eyes was due to personal interest or professional fervor, Jason was still fond of the truth. He looked around first, though, to make sure there weren't any older Germains around. She and I are getting close, yeah. Not courting. That was too much of a jump right now. But there are definitely possibilities. He expected Kip would be happy for him, and was surprised. You trust me, right? Sure. Kip shook his head, frowning. Buddy, she's bad news. Jason didn't believe his ears. Come again? I'm serious. You want a girlfriend, I can think of a hundred gals who would jump at the chance to hang on a ball player's arm, and a thousand who would jump even further if they knew that you, Mr. Three Five Seven batting average, were the ball player in question. I've had a distant eye on that girl longer than you've been in Boston, and I'm telling you, you'd be best off walking away now. She'll just tear you in two. Knock it off. Soon as she gets the chance. I'm serious, Kip. Goodbye. Jason turned his back on his friend, stalking towards the dugout and hoping that the sports writer knew enough not to follow him. And he did. Jason made it to the locker room alone, and he found it was not difficult at all to remember her laugh, her smile, and let the discouraging words from his friend wash down the post-game shower drain. She knew that sooner or later her bow would come down the main hallway on his way out of the stadium, and after Raven had watched him hit all those home runs that afternoon, she wanted nothing more than to see him and congratulate him and look into his eyes again. Maybe feel his arms around her for a little while, if she was lucky. She had worn a pretty dress, letting her hair hang long just for the occasion, and had noticed more than a few approving glances when she was in the stadium seat, though in the end she had eyes for her man alone. A stray thought reminded Raven of how little she had thought of baseball these past years. She was quickly becoming a very big fan. The way Jason Stiller could hit him out of the park, how could she not? Then she saw the familiar, confident stride she had been looking for, and her heart leapt within her. The kid saw his lady fair and smiled. Hi. Hi yourself. He stopped close to her, and for a long moment they just looked into each other's eyes. Then she closed hers as he reached out a gentle hand, tracing the line of her cheek with his fingers. Raven heard herself quietly sigh. 
But then her mind caught up with her heart, and they were both standing in a very public hallway which anybody, including and especially her father, might walk down at any moment. Needing to escape a bit, needing to get her safety net back, Raven dropped out of character for a moment, laughing and punching Jason lightly in the stomach. He stepped back in surprise, as she had intended, and there was the space she needed, a little safer. He continued to look surprised, and she thought it might be good to move on. Saw your game. Yeah? Raven watched his eyes light up and knew she had picked the right topic. You're the best, Mr. Stiller. She loved it when she got him to blush. I guess you won't be catching the next game in Philly, huh? Jason looked as disappointed as he sounded. No, the warden doesn't want me running around on trains, especially ones filled with nasty, dirty baseball players. She wrinkled her nose at the mere thought. Can't argue with that. He was looking at her in that special way again, as her heart and her mind argued with one another, but it was so unsafe. And then her mind was proven right, as her father suddenly turned the corner at the end of the hall and walked towards them both. Apparently, Jason saw the sudden look of horror in her eyes. What? There was no time to explain it, but maybe a quick deception would cover things. Raven put all the frosty tones she had into her voice. I'm sure you did a wonderful job today, Mr. Stiller, but I really don't have that much of a desire to watch baseball games. He looked surprised and hurt, but she couldn't make it better just then. Hello, Father. Raven? Jason? He didn't look angry, but neither did he look especially pleased, and Raven realized that he should have, considering how well the Raves had done that day, how much money he must have collected. As always, my boy, you made a fine showing of yourself. An excellent performance. She gave Jason the quickest of looks, and it seemed that he had tumbled onto the situation. His words confirmed this. Yes, sir, I do my best. I was just trying to convince your daughter it might be worthwhile to catch one of the games sometime. Her father had the audacity to laugh at her in front of them both. I doubt you can convince her of anything in this world once she's made up her mind, Jason. Perhaps it would be best to get some rest in before you have to climb onto tomorrow's train, huh? Definitely, sir. With one last look in her direction, a look that between father and daughter conveyed caution and great disapproval, Robert Germain kept walking and was soon gone. Once he was quite safely out of earshot, Raven muttered, No mention of how I'm supposed to stay away from ball players, father. He must have thought that she was pushing Jason away like she was supposed to, and yet her father had let her seem the foolish one for it. She despised him so. Jason didn't look very happy. I'm sorry, I didn't have a choice. He didn't look any happier. Look, I know this is awkward, and I'm sure we all love the truth, but I can't let my father catch us together, okay? Everything would be over if that happened. The reason I lie is because I don't want it to be over. Raven hoped her father really was gone as she stepped close to him again, taking his hand in hers. He'd ship me back to Michigan faster than you can hit a home run. She hoped the baseball reference would lighten the mood, make him let it go. It didn't. You're how old, again? She understood what he was saying. It's not that simple, Jason. I'm not my own person. I can't make my own decisions. Whether I like it or not, and I don't, I have to depend on my father for a lot of things, and I can't risk upsetting him. But I need you, too. He studied her again, and she wondered how deeply she might fall into those down. He studied her again, as she wondered how far she might fall into those deep brown circles. Okay, 
Then he touched her cheek again, and this time leaned towards her, and though he was offering her a kiss she wanted more than anything, they were still in a crowded hallway. They were still out in the open. She felt a sudden rush of fear. So Raven played the same gag again, a punch to the stomach, harder this time. He got the hint and stepped back. Had she heard him? I need to go. He just moved past her without saying anything more, and Raven was suddenly afraid. She hadn't meant to hurt him, but... Jason? He stopped without turning. She swallowed against a suddenly dry throat. See you when you get back? As hard as she tried, Raven couldn't read his eyes when he turned to look at her, and the smile he offered was short and not very sweet, and then he had disappeared around the corner. Raven closed her eyes and felt very alone. Why hadn't she let him kiss her? What was wrong with her? The young lady might possibly have been surprised to know that, at that moment, Jason Stiller was asking the same questions of himself. The kid still had fathers on his mind the next day, when he found himself sitting next to Dennis G. Muldowney during the long train ride west. D.G. had been amusing himself playing a complicated solitaire, but he gave the game up when his star hitter sat down at the table. I was about to lose anyway. Without asking, he shuffled and dealt out two hands of gin rummy. Once the two had gotten a look at their cards and a few turns had passed, the manager of the Braves looked up, having noticed how far away his player was. What's burning your lips, boy? Jason looked at D.G., his attention recaptured. Say what? His manager grinned. Just trying out some new phrases I've come up with, things that would sound more like a manager. What do you think? Um, you don't want to know. Fine. See if I ever share anything with you again. So I'll be more general about it, rookie. What's on your mind? D.G. still kept a smile on his face, so Jason knew he wasn't really mad. Just things, I guess. Things, huh? I've been around long enough to have heard that before. He took a guess. Women problems? Jason made a face. D.G. laughed. I thought as much. Here I was figuring I was right when I said you and Raven might work well together. Other night at my house, you looked like you were getting along pretty okay, if I do say so. You didn't go and do something stupid now, did you? I'm not sure what happened, Mr. Muldowney, but it wasn't my fault. I'm sure of that. D.G. laughed yet again. Kid, I haven't learned much in the past 55 years, but one thing I do know, it's always our fault. The rookie waved a hand, watching the countryside drift past for a moment. It has to do with fathers more than sons, I think. Uh-huh. D.G. knew Raven's father well, a lot better than the kid, although Jason was apparently learning. That's a tough one. I can't argue with you, kid. He could have warned me, maybe. If I remember correctly, D.G. tossed down a card, I did warn you. You warned me away from the girl, not her father. Same thing. Is it? Having his quick answer called, D.G. was forced to think about his hasty words. Well, he frowned and followed Jason's gaze out the window, not because there was anything interesting to see, but because he could think better. The Germains are pretty closely tied together, and what you do to one affects the other. I suppose when I said Raven wasn't to be played around with, I was thinking about Robert as well, even if I didn't say it. Jason was confused and a little disturbed. They're that close? She hates him. I never said she didn't, and the way he's been treating her since Ellie died, it's no wonder. But despite being old enough to strike out on her own, she hasn't... She's still depending on him. That's what she said, and it bothered him very much. Don't know what to tell you, Jason. A few minutes of silence. Jason broke this. 
Ellie? Eh? Raven's mother, Eleanor? That was her name. I don't know anything about her. Even Raven will never talk about her. Jason didn't know why he wanted to know. Maybe to understand the woman's daughter more. She was the sweetest woman. I first met Ellie when Bob came up from Texas to try and buy the Red Sox, got turned down and looked into the Braves instead. He was always fairly pig-headed. D.G. immediately looked around, concerned. Gee whiz, kid. He's the guy signing your paychecks, and he's somewhere on this train. You want to think about your career a little? Sorry. Anyway, I was going to say focused. Maybe stubborn. But the worst I was going to get was still a lot nicer than you. He was always stubborn at worst, and when he wanted a ball club, he wanted a ball club, and so the Braves were snapped up instead. Jason hadn't heard any of this. It had been about twenty years before, but still. Both the Braves and the Sox were for sale? No, but when Robert P. Germain wants something, well, he found a way to make the Braves be for sale. I suppose I would go so far as ruthless if I were looking for adjectives. He can be pretty ruthless in business. The look that passed between them agreed that he could be pretty ruthless pretty much anywhere, but neither said it aloud. That was why it was such a shock to meet Ellie. The woman was the sweetest, nicest, most caring person I had ever met outside of my Gertie, and I'm not ashamed to say I was a bit jealous of Bob at times. Not, before the kid could butt in with some comment about the sanctity of marriage, that my wife isn't all I ever wanted and more than I deserve, but just because Eleanor was definitely more than Robert P. deserved, by a very long shot. Well, I don't know how they fell in love. I've never asked. But it was always a strange match to me. Which one is Raven-like? D.G. didn't smile outwardly, except with his eyes. These young kids always got back to what was important, didn't they? I knew her more than you in the first twenty years, but you've gotten to know her a lot better than me in the past two months. What do you think? His answer was quick, and that surprised the older man. I think she's like her father, and frankly, it scares me something awful. Why? Jason looked around and lowered his voice carefully. Because the man is pig-headed and stubborn and ruthless and a lot of other things, and all he loves is money, and he'd sell his own daughter for more. I hate him, too, if not as much as she does, and we're both afraid, I think, that she'll end up just like him. The game was at a momentary standstill, while manager and slugger regarded one another. Finally, Mr. Muldowney stacked his cards into a neat rectangle and laid them on the table. I think you're partly right, but not as much as you think you are. Now that I consider things, Raven is like Bob in several ways. But I think the pieces of her that match his aren't born into her. They're something she took on after Ellie died. What do you mean? The kid was looking out the window again, like he didn't want to meet the frankness in his manager's eyes. You're thinking of the stubbornness, of the hardness in her, how she acts sometimes like she has to fight the whole world. You didn't know the girl before the tragedy, and while she's changed... I think the change was made for defense, so she could survive what happened as best she knew how, and also because only her father was left to look up to. Raymond was only 11, 12, still changing from a girl into a young lady, and her role model was stripped away. She watched how her father handled the crisis, by focusing on something he already knew and loved, money, and forgetting everything else so it wouldn't hurt him. She didn't want to be like him, even as she became like him. Raven has been searching for something to latch onto, something to trust in, since her mother's gone and her father won't let her be close. Or something like that. I'm not a doctor, kid. Dennis G. leaned back in his seat, wondering where all that had come from, and also if he was right about it. Jason was wondering what he had gotten into, and whether or not he could handle it, when something contradicted in his mind. 
As far as he had known Robert Germain, there was not an ounce of love in him for anyone or anything. He had to forget this wife's death so it wouldn't hurt him. Does that mean he actually loved her? Now it was D.G. who answered without hesitation. Yes, he did. So much that it scared him. Taking this newest thought further, so much that he couldn't let go when he had to. Couldn't handle life when he lost her. In Jason's mind, that question begged another. So does he also love Raven? He expected that this answer would also be quick. And when it wasn't, he looked at his manager, wondering. Finally, D.G. felt he knew the answer. Yes, he does. Rather, he wants to, but he's afraid to. You keep talking about him being afraid. I can't imagine Bob Germain being afraid of anything. I've known him a lot longer, Jason, and he gets afraid. You can see it in his eyes, and... Suddenly, Dennis knew why Jason and Raven had to be so careful that their love remained a secret. You'll see it for sure if he ever tumbles to the fact that she loves you. Because? Because that's why he holds on to her so tightly. That's why he doesn't want her to get away. He wants to love her, doesn't know how, and at one and the same time he's afraid to love her and afraid to let her go. Because it'll hurt. He's got his life set up perfectly, everything balanced, and nothing out of place. If he actually lets himself love his daughter, she might not love him and that would hurt. And if she leaves, that'll be rejection, which would also hurt. Now D.G. was shaking his head, glad to finally figure the man out, but worried all the more. You've got one heck of an uphill battle to fight, kid. So what does all this have to do with her being scared? I still haven't figured out what I did wrong. D.G. let himself laugh. Not that anything was very funny, but because he needed it. Kid, that gets into the territory of understanding women, and neither of us are going to ever be any good at it, I promise. To Jason, this sounded like a cop-out like his manager was through answering hard questions and he was on his own. The kid rubbed his eyes and wished everything made as much sense as baseball. See that big slice of sky over there? Hit a white ball into it, run around a couple of bases, accept applause. So cut and dried. Maybe DG wasn't answering any more hard questions, but he was still, apparently, up to asking them. Funny you should mention fathers, Jason. The young man's guard came up immediately. I didn't mention mine, Mr. Muldowney. He looked the other man square in the eyes, daring him to push it. The dare was not called. Fair enough, kid. I apologize. It was no longer an amiable conversation, and the manager of the Braves shuffled the playing cards, laying out his game of solitaire again, while his star Hitler left the table and wandered away. Jason roamed the corridors of the train car, staring out all of the windows without seeing what he wanted, wishing he could talk to her, even though he would not know what to say. The kid felt better come game time. Baseball always made him feel better. The Phillies were tough that year, not quite up to the level of the Illinois Reds, who the Braves would probably be head-to-head against in the pennant race, but no garage league team either. Jason was excited by the competition, by the chance to go out onto the ball field and prove that he was worth something, and by the seventh-inning stretch, he had smacked three homers and was feeling much better about himself. He stood on the field and leaned back against the dugout railing, soon to be up at bat again, though his mind drifted away from the game. He didn't know what to think about Raven. She was worth his time and effort, he thought. was pretty sure that he loved her, and even D.G. had admitted that she maybe loved him in return. Why did it have to be so difficult? Wasn't she old enough to make her own decisions? Jason vaguely watched the game progressing before his eyes, but his mind was filled like it often was with chestnut brown hair and green eyes, 
with the sound of her voice, her laugh, with... Suddenly, cutting into his reverie, was the voice of his manager. Kid, you're on deck. No more daydreams. He would talk to Raven when the team returned to Boston, and everything would work out somehow. Right now, it was time to get ready to teach another baseball how to fly, and with confidence, Jason, the kid stiller, walked towards his proper station. Well, he tried to. The first step Jason took was cut short as his left foot began to be pulled along by his right, and halfway to the ground, he realized that someone had done an excellent job of tying his shoelaces together. The trip had been so surprising that Jason was not able even to put out a hand to catch himself. He rolled over with the realization that his face hurt something awful, but he worked hard at ignoring this as he sat right there on the ground, untying and then retying his shoes properly with as much dignity as he could muster. There were understandable hoots and catcalls coming from the inside of the dugout. Jason didn't hear Phil's voice among them, and was grateful for having one true friend at least. DG had apparently not witnessed Jason's teammate, whoever he had been, Jason knew immediately, leaning through the railing to pull the shoe-tying prank, and looked as surprised as his star hitter felt. You okay? I'm fine. Jason, your uh, nose is bleeding. I'm fine. He wasn't about to show weakness. He wasn't about to let it get to him. He wasn't about to admit that there was anything he couldn't handle. So Jason stood up, ignoring the bloody nose, ignoring the grass stains on his pants, ignoring the crowd which he was sure was all laughing at him. When the time came, he took his place in the batter's box and stared the pitcher down. Behind him, the Phillies catcher made a disgusted sound, referring to the blood that was now running down Jason's shirt from the nose that still hurt and which the kid was still ignoring. That's really sick, rookie. Want to take care of that before you come up here next time? Jason ignored even him, concentrating all of his anger and hurt into that white horsehide sphere. And he struck out one, two, three, swinging so hard that his shoulders ached, and then he turned and walked back to the dugout. Nobody was laughing among the Braves anymore as he walked down the steps and into the clubhouse, past his teammates lining the concrete benches. If Bud Triplehorn felt any shame for his little prank, Jason couldn't find any in his cold eyes. I cannot believe what I am standing here looking at, Raven Eleanor Germain. I honestly cannot. The day's ball club meeting was over, and Jason had been walking through the stadium hallways towards his car, the car he had borrowed from D.G. Muldowney for the summer, anyway, when he heard one very angry voice slamming through the closed door, past the sign that read Robert P. Germain, owner, National League certified since 1903 Boston Braves. The young man was just thinking that he might do well to slip past the door and quietly be on his way when he realized who Bob was yelling at, and thought he might want to listen closer. The hallway was quiet. The guys had pretty much left, and it looked like he could eavesdrop in safety. The voice coming through the door was easily heard, without his putting his ear to the wood. You can sit there and tell me all the lies you want about having nothing to do with my ball players, but I swear I'll believe the newspaper before you any day this week. I don't know what's truth and what's lies anymore with you, Raven. Jason knew what his boss was referring to, and although the hot anger had passed, a fresh surge of irritation and annoyance with Kip Gumbo shot through him. The sports section article from his supposed friend had talked about the one game lost and 2-1 against the Phillies, which was fine. But then Kip had ended with a paragraph outlining the rumor, which the sports writer made certain sounded pretty real, that Jason Stiller and Raven Germain were pretty close to one another. 
having been busy just being angry with the kid reporter. Jason had forgotten to be afraid of Bob Germain. Now he remembered, and felt for the girl he loved, inside, under the gun. The girl in question had never had so many walls up around her heart before in her life. There was no way that Robert P. Germain was going to hurt her. Not that night. At the same time, in a quiet place inside that Jason had touched, a place she had never let her father even get close to, Raven despaired, and wondered how in the world Jason could have let his stupid little pet reporter friend tell the whole world that they were in love. And for that matter, were they? She hadn't been able to talk to Jason since he had gotten back, and now the paper... Maybe he was running already. Maybe she was losing him even as she sat and suffered through the yelling. Raven's walls were up, and her eyes were cold, while inside her heart shivered. Robert knew that his daughter wasn't listening, so he kept raising the volume, hoping to get through to her somehow, angry at Jason, angry at that reporter, angry at his daughter, and angry at himself for not having control of things. Have we not had this conversation before? You have a responsibility to this family. Family? You call this a family? Quiet! The thunder worked, and silence alone reigned in the small room. He took several deep breaths and found a slightly calmer place to work from. I am all the family you have, Miss Germain, and you might do well to remember that. Do you want to be tossed out on your own? Survive however you can? It would be very easy, and Robert began pacing back and forth, but could only get about three steps in before he had to turn, which made him angry again, to just cut you off, little girl. Cut you off from my money and my house and my time and just let you take care of yourself. Do you want that? Yes, she desperately wanted that, even as she didn't for the life of her know to how to go about getting such freedom, or what she would do with such freedom if it existed. No, sir. More pacing. You think that we're not a family? You probably think that I don't care about you? I'll bet you even think that I'd sell you into white slavery if I thought I could turn a profit on it. She did think all of those things, and had wondered more than once how long it would be before some rich, old friend of her father's offered a huge dowry for her hand in marriage. Not exactly white slavery, but still not much of a deal for the exchange property. It might surprise you to learn it, but I loved your mother very much, and I love you as well. Though even as he said these things, he wouldn't meet her eyes. Raven realized that she hadn't looked into her father's eyes in years. Maybe not since the day of her mother's... not in years. When we lost Ellie, it almost killed me, but I've been striving as hard as I can to keep this family together, to keep us together. I don't want you to just run off with this guy or that. Maybe this whole thing is my fault for getting Jason to come out here. But I was thinking of baseball, Raven, not of romance. He's still a ball player, and you deserve so much better than that. It almost felt like the real man, the man somewhere deep inside, the man Raven hadn't seen in ages, was peeking out for a moment. She felt almost like she could really talk to her father. You don't understand. I've seen these ball players. I've spent years around them. They'll chase any pretty face they can find. There was a compliment in there somewhere, and Raven was hearted just a little bit more. Jason's different. Raven, pretend for just a moment that I'm older than you are and know what's best for you. I've been around. I know how guys think and what they're thinking about. You having a summer fling with one of the boys, especially... He tossed the paper down on the table, and she realized he was still angry. When it gets out like this, in this manner, well, it hurts the team, and it hurts the family, and it hurts me, Raven. This little crush is very selfish of you. It's not a little crush. She spoke quietly, testing the waters, thinking maybe she could talk to him just this once like they were both real people. He was also quiet, which was out of character. 
Raven, please. It's been a long day. She heard the quiet plea and saw the bowed head and thought maybe things would be okay between them for once. Maybe she could take the chance. With a deep breath, she did. Daddy, I love him. Outside the boss's office, Jason heard her admission, and his heart skipped a beat out of sheer joy. And then he wondered what in the world her father would say. Unfortunately for young love, Raven had been mistaken about her father's sudden openness. It really had been a long day for him, and he was tired, but not more approving, not more happy about who he was, not more prepared to deal with real life. He didn't hear the desperate hope in her words, nor did he hear the softness in the name she called him by. He only heard his control slipping away, and reacted accordingly. Raven jumped when her father's fist slammed down on his own desk, right in the middle of the paper, hard enough to send a mug full of pens flying. You will stay away from Jason Stiller, do you understand me? She almost didn't. It took an extra moment just to make sense of his words. They had been shouted so close to her face. The hesitation did not help matters. Slam! Do you? She couldn't couldn't speak, couldn't look at him, had no way to respond except to nod vigorously, keep her eyes closed, and hope that he would just go away. He did. Loud, stomping footsteps left the office, stalked down the hallway that led out of the stadium, and as she sat listening, Raven heard the front doors bang at her father's exit, and finally the sound of the limousine driving away. As she sat in her father's chair and shook because she was both frightened and very angry, Raven still understood Robert Germain's final message. She could think about making it on her own during the ride home, which which she would have to figure out all by herself. Whether or not she had any money, whether or not there was anyone she could call for a lift, whether or not it was a moonlight midnight and she had to somehow walk home alone. The quiet knock at the still-open door surprised her, and she opened her eyes. Jason had managed to hide quickly when he realized that the boss was about to storm right past him. When the coast was clear, he thought it safe to come out. And when she opened her red, tear-brimming eyes, he could see how much she had been hurt and wondered whether or not she would want to see him. She did. Oh, Jason! As a sob burst out of her, Raven stood up out of the chair and ran to him, hoping that he would let go of their quarrel, of the angry father, and just grab her up and hold her as tightly as he could. And he did. It felt so wonderful. He was strong and warm and comforting, and he loved her, too, enough to hold her and want to hold her and be with her always, weeping into his shoulder with the hurt and the anger and the shame of it all, accepting the strength and warmth of his arms holding her tightly, feeling the heart beating in his chest, Raven let herself get lost in the only comforting place she knew of anymore. Jason held her so tightly it hurt, though the real hurts for both were deep inside. He had no idea what would come tomorrow, or what they would do about their problem, or even if she really loved him or was just accepting his embrace because it was the only one offered. He just held her, and held her, and wished with all his might that it would never end. And a stray thought or two swept past the idea of talking to God, making an appeal to a higher power that just might want to help. But he had never known how to do that. He and God had an understanding. After all, they left one another alone. Jason Stiller held the young woman that he loved, that his heart was aching for, 
and with great fear and trembling contemplated dealing with the future they were trying to find alone. She loves him, yeah, 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 and her dad is not gonna go for that at all. Ah, conflict. What will happen between Jason and Raven? What's gonna happen with the Braves? You're gonna have to come back in two weeks and hope that in that time nothing really exciting happens that I take the whole podcast to tell about. But, about an hour ago, roughly, I told you that I had another example of owning one's stage. Uh, a different dance recital. This was for Dance and Dreams, and I was filming in, at Aurora Central High School. And the dancer in question, uh, you could go look up her name. You probably haven't met her, so you know we'll just call her the dancer. Came out to do a solo. Uh, it was recital four, I think, of five we filmed that weekend. She came out to do a solo to, uh, I want to say MC Hammers, Too Legit to Quit, whoever wrote Too Legit to Quit. That's what she was dancing to. And if you've never danced a solo on stage, the earlier story I told, those three tappers, at least while they were waiting for two minutes for the right music to come along, had each other. They could take comfort from the fact that the other two partners on stage hadn't broken either, if you will. This soloist only had herself, and solos on stage, anything on stage by yourself, I speak from stand-up experience, is a challenge. Uh... This soloist, as I keep referring to her, the dancer came out and started her dance, and the music was fine, the lights were fine, she was fine, until about halfway through where something happened. Maybe there was a weird sound from offstage, maybe somebody took a picture in the flash distractor, something happened, and as I was told later, the dancer forgot the last half of her routine, which nightmares are made of that sort of thing. She is up there on stage in front of hundreds, and she totally blanked on the next move plus the rest of the minute and a half two minutes that she had remaining and she ran off stage lights go down 10 15 seconds later the lights come up and the next dance the next dancers are on are, are quickly found put out on stage the next dance begins i don't think anybody certainly not me would have blamed the soloist for quitting dance forever but certainly for not coming back however this is what I'm talking about when I say owning your stage. It's not about not ever making a mistake. It's not about never failing. It's not about being perfect. However, 20, 25 minutes later, the lights come up. Too legit to quit starts up. And there's the soloist back, and she did the entire performance. Even to, you know, despite that she had forgotten what had happened last time, and you think she wasn't afraid of forgetting again, it was it was ten times worse. Any stage fright she had the first time was ten to a hundred times worse the second time. But she got back out there, and she did her dance, and the applause she got when she was done, she deserved every last beat of it. So when I say own your stage, that's what I'm talking about. Regardless of whether or not you failed before or you're going to fail this time, regardless of what people might think about you, I want you to go out there and own it and live your life as though... You wanted to be there. My son needs something, and I think that's it for the podcast today. But hey, I'm serious. Own your stage. And uh, we'll see you here in a couple weeks. <laughs>